Welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host, and we're coming to you from the studios at the Coming Home Network International. Thank you for joining us. I'm joined, uh, as usual, by Dr. Kenneth Howell. And uh, we, if, if you haven't already, we'd love for you, thank you for joining us, and we'd love for you to go to deepinscripture.com where you can find out more about this program, more about the work of the Coming Home Network, all the archived Journey Home programs, as well as Deep in Scripture programs, are all available online. Um, and uh, we'd love to hear from you, so you can write us an email at deep, dis at chnetwork.org. We're working through the Book of Romans, and, uh, you know, Ken, even as we begin, uh, you know, sometimes I feel a bit sheepish that we're able to do what we can on this program, but wouldn't you agree that we live at a time, because of the internet, that that there are uh, just a, a treasure trove of wonderful resources available online for people who desire to dig deep, dig deep and to dig faithfully into Scripture? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's it's remarkable um, and wonderful that we have all these resources at our fingertips. But the um, same old thing is true. It comes back to reading and thinking and meditating and, and taking, soaking in the great wisdom of others who've looked at Scripture before us. Uh, so uh, I consider it a great privilege. And today, Marcus, we're coming to a section of, I have to confess, I love, this is just a wonderful section of the Bible where we talk about sacrificing our lives to God and what He's done for us and how He calls us to be a part of the body of Christ. Yeah, to a certain extent, it almost always seems that when Paul was writing his letters to the churches, he almost had a a mental idea that he would get through his theology and then he would talk about what difference this makes in their lives. Uh, and, And to a certain extent, Ken, that's the way most preachers always think, you know? You begin with the scriptures, mm-hmm. you begin with the the basis, the reasons, uh, the theology, and then at the end, what difference does this make? Uh, all that we've talked about, mm-hmm. and in a, after we deal with the emails, we'll look at that, Romans 12 to the end of the book, are all about what difference does anything that Paul has said in chapters 1 through 11, what difference does any of that make for the actual living out of our faith? And we see that in ver- chapter 12 through to the end. Well, we'll deal with some emails. We love getting your emails. Thank you for sending these. And uh, we love the challenges. Um, and uh, maybe one thing just to mention, at the Coming Home Network website, we have a forum. If you'd love to be in dialogue with others about different aspects of the faith, you can go to the forum. You can become a part of the forum. And often from there, we get some of our questions. Can both of the emails today connect with today's passage to a certain extent that deal with um, living out our faith. And uh, they, they both have to do with sin, uh, both of these emails. The first one comes from, let's see, Jay. And he says, will there be entry into heaven for a person who has committed a mortal sin without going to confession? This person believes he only has to confess his grievance grievous sin to God. Well, Ken, it, I think it's pretty obvious Jay's a Catholic because he's looking at this from a Catholic perspective because you and I both know from our background that a, a, a very large percentage of 
of Christians um, do believe that all that is necessary is the second half of his question, that as long as I confess my sin to God, then that's all that's necessary. And a majority of Christians uh, wouldn't think that a a sacramental confession is necessary. But then we've got John 20, when our Lord gives the sacrament of reconciliation, confession to the apostles. That's the first thing he gives them when he meets them in the upper room. So we see the importance of that. We hear John talking about the importance of confession in 1 John chapter 1, 9, when he, when he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we see this importance of confession. But the questioner is wondering, what about mortal sin if it isn't confessed in the confessional under the guidance of a priest? Yeah, well, it's a it's it's a great question, and as you rightly pointed out, one that only a Catholic would really ask, because even the distinction between mortal and non-mortal sins is not well recognized in other portions of uh, of the Christian world. Uh, however, uh, Scripture does recognize that difference in that book that you just mentioned uh, in chapter five of of First uh, John. He talks about uh, this distinction between mortal sin, and where this is in First John five, uh, thirteen. He says, "If any, if you see a brother committing a sin that is not unto death, that is not a mortal sin, you shall pray for him. You shall ask for him, and and God will give him life. Uh, to those who do sin, not do not sin a mortal sin." Uh, but th- he says there is a sin unto death, and that's what we mean by mortal sin, a sin that cuts us off from the life of God. Now, that so that distinction here that the Apostle John is making between a sin that leads us to death and a sin that d- does not lead us to death, this is the distinction between a venial sin, that's a sin that doesn't lead us to death, and a mortal sin. And it's important to remember that distinction, one, that it's based upon what Scripture says, but also the church has defined a little bit more carefully uh, what that means. A mortal sin must be something that is inherently, inherently um, and uh, grievous. In other words, it has to be something that is seriously wrong. And so a child steals a, a, a penny or a nickel uh, from someone versus uh, someone who embezzles five million dollars, it's inherently wrong. Uh, not inherently so much as it is. It's it's um, it's so grievous that it can be uh, certainly ranked as being uh, even in the eyes of men as being an, a horrible sin. The second thing is that the person must know that it was wrong. In other words, a person could sin without knowing that something is wrong. Objectively speaking, there it is. What they've done is wrong. Uh, So, for example, we have this distinction in law between manslaughter and first-degree murder, right? Manslaughter is where there wasn't a premeditated intention to do that thing. Then the third thing is that a person must cooperate completely with their own will, their own desire for evil, and not just be led into it, say, by by habit. Um, and the difficulty in applying that, as many confessors, 
is knowing whether or not that's actually occurred or not in a person's life. But let us suppose that a person has committed a mortal sin or believes that he has committed a mortal sin. Um, the normal thing to do would be to go to confession. That's the objective structure. That's the way. That's the pattern that God has given to us. But is it possible for a person to be forgiven outside of that? Well, the church has rightly said uh, that a person can make an act or have an attitude of perfect contrition. By perfect contrition, it means that one is sorry for one's sin, but not just because one will be punished. And we know this in children, right? Sometimes children are sorry for things because they don't want to get the punishment, right? Uh, but rather um, perfect contrition is when a person is sorrow, sorry for that sin and sorrowful for that sin because it offends the loving God and that person loves God. And so it's as we should have in our marriages when we go to our spouse and say, I'm sorry for what I said, I'm sorry for what I did, and not because we're worried about the consequences, but because we want the relationship restored. And the church says that with that attitude of heart, that more that the objective uh, uh, sin can be overcome by God's grace, because God's grace is not limited to uh, the confessional. But the problem there is we don't always know whether we have that. And so the assurance comes when we receive that through uh, the confessional. Ken, I was, as you were talking there, thank you for that. Um, I was thinking about the necessity of sacramental confession. Um, and correct me here, um, a lot of it has to do is mortal sin and, and the, whether one is culpable has a lot to do with whether we know. Um, and if we know it to be bad and do it, then it's worse than if we don't know it to be bad and we do it, right? That affects right. That's right. the culpability of That's that. Right. So right. Uh, in the case of what Jay's talking about, if it's a Catholic who knows and decides I'm not I'm going to skip confession that's different than oh, someone yeah. who is not a catholic and doesn't know and turns their that's heart true. to god and says lord forgive yeah. me um you yeah. know there's a real distinction there and mm -hmm. it made me think about a passage in hebrews that was always a conundrum passage in chapter 6 when it says for it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they then commit apostasy, since they crucify the Son of God on their own account and hold him up to contempt. And that passage is... Uh, it's a real eye-opener in my mind. When I was a Calvinist, I really didn't know what to do with that passage because I didn't think you could commit apostasy. I believed you were once saved, always saved, and and uh, so how do you explain this passage? But even so, the strength of the word impossible to restore again to repentance because we know anything's impossible. With, everything is possible with God. So if we turn to God and ask forgiveness, God will respond. So 
but it, this passage seems to imply to me, Ken, that the context, this is someone who has been baptized. In other words, they've been enlightened. That's what baptism means. That's true. Who've mm-hmm. tasted the heavenly gift in the particulars of the Holy Spirit. They've received the Holy Spirit as a result of baptism. They've experienced a new life. They've uh, th- they've tasted it all, but they have chosen intellectually and with the act of the will to turn away from God. And Paul uses, or the writers of he- the writer of Hebrews, I believe it was Paul, but the writer of Hebrews used such a strong expression of what it means to turn away. A mortal sin is re-crucifying Jesus, you know, yes. holding Christ up to contempt. It's spitting on the face of Christ on the cross, Christ on the cross. And yeah. from a pastoral perspective, from experience, Paul is saying, when people do that, it is difficult to bring them back. Impossible. It's not impossible for, mm-hmm. for God, but it's so no. he's talking about the seriousness of sin and why the gift of the confessional is so important because we can blindly think, eh, Jesus, I'm sorry, and move on. But the effect of sin is so serious that the writers of Hebrews says, that's why we've got to take sin seriously. Well, I think you're, uh, I think this is interesting because um, I remember studying this passage years ago because I was teaching a Bible study on the letter to the Hebrews. When I came across this passage, I remember reading one commentator who said that the author may not be saying that it's impossible from God's point of view, but it's impossible psychologically. And I think that's what you're saying is that when a person becomes uh, immersed and enamored in a sin, and it may just not it may not be sin outwardly, but a sinful way of thinking. Uh, that person, that comes to a point where it may be, in fact, impossible for anything that we could do, at least, or maybe that even he or she could do, to bring them back to repentance, because they have so completely turned away and rejected God. Now, I think you're right in saying, and, and I think the church has always said this, that we should never exclude anyone completely uh, from the, from our point of view, because we then we would be playing God. And this actually came up in the work that I'm doing right now. I'm translating uh, St. Cyprian of Carthage, uh, and uh, said that controversy came up in the 250s, of the, that is, the, right in the middle of the 3rd century, when people had apostatized or turned away from Christ under the persecutions that were taking place at the time. There were rigorists who said, no, these people cannot be allowed to come back into the church because they turned away from Christ in a moment of trial. But the larger part of the church, including St. Cyprian himself, uh, Stephen, the bishop or the pope, um, all the bishops of um, of Africa said, well, they have to be go through a series of penances, but they can be restored. And they did that based upon the belief in the mercy of God. But the question then that the author of Hebrews is asking is, or maybe is asserting rather, is that it's impossible psychologically for these people to be renewed because they're too far gone. Yeah, I was thinking of um, that statement in Lumen Gentium 
which is the Catholic, the, the teaching on the church in Vatican II, where it talks about the necessity of the church, um, you know, Christ present to us in his body, which is the church, is the one mediator in the unique way of salvation. In explicit terms, he himself affirmed the necessity of faith and baptism, and therefore affirmed also the necessity of the church. For through baptism, as through a door, men enter the church. Whoever, therefore, knowing that the Catholic Church was made necessary by Christ, would refuse to enter or to remain in it, could not be saved. And, and again, all that is dealing with the, the importance, the significance of baptism and confession and the Eucharist mm. to receive the graces and to make sure that what we're believing is true so that when we stand before God, we don't stand before him uh, with embarrassment or even in disappointment. You know, our Lord says in the Sermon on the Mount, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will experience the kingdom of God. You know, we could be wrong. We could be blind to our understanding of sin and how seriousness, how serious it is. Um, we may have been encouraged all our life to think that a mere, um, can, you know, a mere verbal, Lord, I'm sorry, is sufficient, and then we move on. Ken, you and I come from a background that basically says that once we accepted Christ years ago, then all of our sins, past, present, and future, have already been forgiven. So it really doesn't matter uh, what we do anymore with our lives uh, because it's already been forgiven in Christ. Once saved, always saved. And so this is why the danger of the theologies that we pick up along the way, or as Paul will say later, prophecies. We're going to talk about this in a moment, that our prophecies, our teachings, our understanding of the faith must be in proportion, must be in the analogy of faith. We'll get to that in a moment, Ken. But it, it connects with this email that our sin is so eternally significant and it makes a big difference how we understand sin in our lives. And Ken, why don't we go, if we would, to the, the next passage, the next question, excuse me, because it connects uh, with what we're talking about. Another emailer asked, Dear Marcus Grodi, can you respond to my intellectual dilemma? It deals with the justice of God. What do you consider a more radical punishment, hanging or spending eternity in hellfire? If you say spending eternity in hellfire, then consider any of your friends or family who are not practicing Christians, who are not members of the church, who are not living out their faith. Given their lives, do any of them deserve hanging? If not, then how can we justify God condemning them to eternal hellfire? Thanks, Fred. Now, now Ken, does his email make sense? I mean, uh, does it need rephrasing yeah. for the audience? Well, no, I think what he's doing is he's he's giving a you know it's classically called a minori ad majorum uh, argument. He's saying from the lesser case to the greater. So the lesser case is the hanging, and the great the greater punishment is is that of hell. Well, if they're not worthy of hanging for not believing in Christ, how could they be worthy of eternal hell? 
Do you think that's what he's asking? Yes. Um, and I think he's also comparing the justice of man with the justice of God. You know, and mm-hmm. our justice is to be modeled after the justice of God. The mercy of man mm-hmm. is to be modeled after the mercy of God. So if we wouldn't, if we don't think a person deserves hanging, if their life, then how can we justify God sending them to hell forever? And I, mm-hmm. I think what he's getting at is the same, if you will say, dilemma or not, or at least the question that arose in the mind of, of I think you had mentioned, Origen had the same struggle, and then the New England Puritans who ended up buying into universalism. In other words, how do you balance the sovereignty of God versus the mercy of God? Uh, how could God condemn to eternity somebody who seemingly doesn't do a sin that justifies it? It seems to me that's what he's getting at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think the 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 this assumption behind the uh, behind the question is that God's justice uh, should be exactly the same as ours. And that's that I would question. I don't think that neither the Bible, the Christian tradition, nor even human reason suggests uh, that God's justice has to conform to our standards. Now, that doesn't mean that God's justice is arbitrary or unfair, but let me explain it this way. Um, when we inflict a punishment upon someone, let's say, in a court of law, and uh, <clears throat> in fact, we just heard about it, just heard a man, about a man on the radio who, who killed the two uh, snipers, or killed uh, the, two, the sniper and his friend, and he's been sentenced to life in prison without possibility of parole. Uh, what was the judge basing that on? And not only the severity of the crime, but on an outward action. Suppose that man who was just sentenced to life in prison had borne a grudge or hatred in his heart, but never actually killed the person. The man would never be in court, right? Because we don't, we don't and can't, as human beings, judge the state of the heart of another person. We can only judge outward actions. However, God is omniscient. And the the case is a different one than the case of a person who might be condemned uh, to hanging. In this case, this is the big question of life. How did you spend your life? What is the orientation of your life? Where is your heart? Because God being omniscient in the final judgment is not just judging people's actions. They're judging their heart. And so that heart that is ingrained with a um, with an animosity toward God, that heart that is intractable and cannot be changed, that has dispositions of wanting to push God away and keep God at a distance, um, in essence, the final judgment or eternal hell is simply God saying to that person, okay, you don't want me. You don't want a relationship with me. You don't want the love that I have to give you. Then I give you what you want. In a very, very real sense, um, God doesn't send people to hell. They send themselves to hell. That is because they're rejecting the offer of mercy and love which God has put out in front of them. 
I always love that that book by C.S. Lewis, uh, The Great Divorce. Uh, and it's a fun book to read. You know, he's he's doing tongue in cheek, so he's not trying to be theologically accurate perfectly. But the book is about a, a bus ride from hell to heaven where a bunch of people who are now living in hell get an opportunity to visit heaven. And the, the C.S. Lewis even says that they've got another chance, as if they got a special second chance. Okay, we'll take to heaven if you want to come. And when you read the book, it's, it's just great because uh, all the people in hell don't know they're in hell. They don't want to leave hell. They're comfortable in hell. You know, it's all the reasons, the excuses, uh, and, you know, that's the stuff we don't see in ourselves. You know, sometimes, Ken, another thing is that people sometimes look at Catholics and Catholics can sometimes sound like the worst sins that we can do in this life are sexual sins. But these are the yeah, worst. That's true. And yeah. the truth is, they aren't. <clears throat> the worst sins are what go on inside of us that no one ever sees. Yeah. Well, good, good confessors, priests, confessors, and good moral theologians will tell you that most sins of most sexual sins. Are, are sins of weakness. Now, there are some that are sins of malice, like rape would be, but most sins of sexual sins are sins of human weakness, um, letting, giving in to a desire which is inappropriate. But <clears throat> the sins of malice, so there's the sins of weakness and there's sins of malice. Sins of malice are intentional things in which we attempt to do something that is inherently, objectively wrong. And usually that involves hurting another person in some way. All right. When we get back from the break in a moment, we're going to look at Romans chapter 12, 1 through 8. And uh, as an over the wonderful section, if you got a chance during the break, grab your Bible, read through just these first eight verses of chapter 12. And uh, there's so much uh, depth in these eight verses. It's hard to cover in our short length of time. But they deal with the idea of sacrifice, the idea of worship, the idea of, of doing our, with our entire bodies what our, what our faith is, uh, our minds being changed, living in obedience, and how we live together in the body of Christ. We're gonna look at all of things in a moment when we come back. We'll see you then. Hello, I'm Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, and I'd like to tell you about my newest book, What Must I Do to Be Saved? A growing number of Christians today believe that all that is necessary for salvation is an individual's faith in Jesus. Churches everywhere proclaim this Jesus and me theology based upon a simple interpretation of John 3.16. They diminish the need for rituals, sacraments, creeds, or even membership in any particular church. But is this true? In this book, I examine how salvation has always come by being a faithful individual in the family of God, the church. For information, please go to chresources.com or call 740-450-1175. Thank you.
What do all these have in common? A former agnostic, a fallen away Catholic, and a once upon a time Protestant. Find out next time on The Journey Home. Marcus Grodi invites pilgrims from all walks of life to share how they made it home to the Catholic Church. The Journey Home, only on EWTN. The Journey Home is seen and heard around the world on EWTN. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. Deep in Scripture is brought to you by the Coming Home Network International. We are a network of inquirers, converts, as well as lifelong Catholics helping one another grow closer to Jesus Christ. On our website, you'll find conversion stories, articles, and videos, as well as information about becoming a member and receiving our CH newsletter. Visit chnetwork.org or connect with us on Facebook or Twitter. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, Dr. Ken Howell, and we're we're going to look at Romans chapter 12, 1 through 8. And uh, Ken, what I'd like to do is, since it's just a short section, such a beautiful text, let me read through the text, and then if you would, put it in the context of the book of Romans and our, our studies up to here, okay? So let me read, though. This is... Uh, you know, these are those kind of verses that you really should memorize anyway, encourage the audience. Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that you may prove what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I beg every one among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith which God has assigned him. For as in one body we have many members, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving. He who teaches in his teaching, he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who contributes in liberality, he who gives aid with zeal. Now, Ken, we may not get to all these verses today, because I think we could probably spend the whole rest of our half hour on one and two, but... Give us the context that what led to Paul's thinking in this passage. Well, perhaps our listeners will remember that we just finished uh, talking about Romans chapter 11, Romans chapter 9 through 11, which were that long section that had to deal with um, the question of whether the Jews, having, having not by and large not embraced their Messiah, whether they were cut off by God. Now, Paul is speaking here, remember, in Romans to two audiences at once. He's dealing, he's talking to Jew, Jewish Christians, and he's talking to Gentile Christians. And in both cases, what Paul seems to be saying is that be humble, be careful, that you don't look at yourselves as being better than one another. 
neither the Gentiles Christians nor the Jewish Christians. And Paul, in considering the sometimes the various mysterious ways in which God is dealing with humanity, um, comes to the end of chapter 11 with that beautiful doxology for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever and ever. Then Paul transitions with the word therefore. And as you and I learned in seminary, Marcus, uh, <laughs> when there's a therefore, we have to ask why it's there, what it's there for. Yep. And what is it? What is the therefore transition from and what is it to? It's from Paul's contemplation of this mysterious ways of God's working in the world to now asking or now asserting what the practical implications for that are. Given that God has called us into relationship with himself— in Jesus Christ, in the church, now how should we live? And how we should live, he goes on to say, is by offering our lives a living sacrifice. So from chapter 12, verse 1, to the, almost to the end of the book, he's going to spell out what it means to live as a living sacrifice for God. All right. Thank you, Ken. This, okay, verse 1 <clears throat> in itself... Uh, offers more than enough um, wood for us to burn a nice fire here and uh, warm ourselves uh, of the great beauties that God gives us in Scripture. Um, he begins with the phrase, I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. He goes on to the present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Let's just look at the first phrase for a second. I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Um, there's a number of things that if we step back and think about what's going on here, we have the Apostle Paul recognizing that he has, he's doing something now that when he was a young man, he never dreamed he would do. He finds himself in a position of apostolic leadership in a brand new movement within Judaism that, um, if you, under the guidance of Christ, one might look back to the prophets of the Old Testament and anticipate this new movement following the Messiah. But it was a surprise. And so he finds himself in a, in a unique position of leadership, exhorting these Jewish and Greek converts in Rome to live their lives in a new way, different than they, had, they themselves ever anticipated. And the point of that is, in our desire to follow Jesus Christ, we need to be aware of baggage that we bring with us that colors how we understand what it means to be obedient to Jesus Christ, what it means to follow the leaders of the church um, or follow our own interpretation of what it means to be obedient to Christ. And so we have our lives that if we are in Christ, then the lives that we live now in Christ are generally to be quite a bit different than what we lived before we were in Christ. Maybe by the mercies of God, we had always been walking in 
God's pleasure, but uh, if you're anything like me, that's not true. So my life now have my life has to be different, and we make choices every day with our relationships, with our possessions, with our time, our talents, and we are called to live those out from now to the end of this earthly journey that we've been given by the mercy of God. And we're listening to uh, an apostle who never himself dreamed that this would be true of him. But he finds himself in this position to exhort others. And Ken, it still amazes me. You know, most of us have lived most of our lives with Christian teaching. Most of it is old hat. We know what this says. And we may not appreciate the fact that Paul has found himself by the mercies of God in a unique situation, uh, giving new instructions on how these people are now to live their lives in a way that they never imagined when they were living as Jews or pagans. And Paul isn't just inventing this as he goes along. We know from another place in the book of Acts that it's possible he'd spent some time intimately with Christ in the seventh heaven, giving, getting unique, infused instructions from God to how do you live this out? What difference does it make? Mm-hmm. And all of that is behind what he now is passing on to these Romans. Well, this, uh, this is, um, in, in these words that Paul says here, I, I think we have to see them as very heartfelt in the version, the translation we're using, he says, I appeal to you. You could translate it, I exhort you, through the mercies of God. And he may mean that his exhortation is coming from the mercies of God. Or you could construe it also the other way, that by the mercies of God, you are to present your yeah. your, your bodies as living sacrifices. And in fact, both are true, that Paul is doing this as an apostle because he has been given mercy by God. On the road to Damascus, Jesus revealed himself to Paul from heaven. But it's also true for us that in giving our lives, our bodies, which is kind of a summary for our life, as a living sacrifice, we can only do that through the mercy of God as well. Ken, there's a a part of the Mass that Many of our, our view our listeners may not realize this, but there are parts of the Mass of the and the Eastern liturgies that can be traced back to the first days of the Catholic of the, of the Christian life, and uh, mm-hmm. and part of that is that the phrase in uh, the liturgy that says "Lift up your hearts," we lift them up mm-hmm. to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord the Lord our God, that whole little couplet that's in the Mass. And that act of lifting up our hearts is a sacrificial expression that to me parallels what we're seeing in this passage. When Paul is then saying, through the authority that he didn't take upon himself, but that he received, uh, but he's living out in obedience to the mercies of God, that he's exhorting that they present their bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You know, I hear behind that, that phrase, lift up your hearts, 
Lift up, you're, you're laying yourself, your life, your body, all that you are, on the altar of God. You're laying it before him for his examination. And Ken, that reminds me of the Old Testament Le- Levitical uh, rules for sacrifice. When, you know, even uh, Abraham, when he, when he first went into Cana and God said, okay, go get a three, a, a two or three year old heifer and a goat and, a, and you cut them up and you lay them there. You're laying it before God, and he examines our sacrifice. And they were to be pure, without flaw, uh, because they were an expression of, of not just a person's wealth, but an expression of the inner condition of their heart and mind was expressed through the sacrifice they laid before God. And so Paul is exhorting these Christians that what goes on inside of them, in their thinking, in their hearts— the truth is to be expressed on what is on the outside, and this is what they are to lay before God as an expression of the convictions of their faith. Yeah, and, and that that's uh, pointing us to worship is um, is very appropriate because, of course, Paul uses here at the end of verse one, he uses the word spiritual worship, and the Greek word behind worship is latreia. <clears throat> which has been taken over into our English, our Catholic ease, you might say, because uh, we speak of it as uh, latreia, is that worship which is due only to God, which we don't give to any other creature. We only give latreia to God. It's that highest form of worship. But Paul says this is, um, in our version that we have in front of us today, the, the spiritual worship. But it could also be translated our reasonable worship, our rational worship. The word normal word for spiritual in Greek is pneumatikos, uh, from which we get the word like a pneumatic pump. <clears throat> but the word here is logikos or logikain latreon. The logike means the logical, the rational. And that that's uh, the kind of worship that is appropriate for a rational being. Now, without going into all the reasons why, we can firmly say, based upon human observation and science, that human beings are really the only rational creatures that there are in the universe. All other animals are sub-rational in some sense. So what Paul is saying here is that the worship of offering your body as a living sacrifice is a kind of sacrifice that's an exactly an appropriate worship for God because it is the only rational thing to do. And that offering of ourselves to God will bring about the transformation of the mind that he speaks about in verse 2. Yeah, maybe another question before we jump to verse 2, because there's so much good stuff here, Ken. I mean, what do we do here uh, in our short time? Um, Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Two questions that I could see arising based on our background. Um, is he only talking about bodies or are we talking about the, the understanding of a person, which is body and soul? Um, mm-hmm. Or is there a narrow understanding here? Is there a wider understanding here? Present your bodies. So in other words, it's only, is he only talking about the morality here? Or, or is he talking about us as persons, all that we are in a bigger sense? And second of all, if he's saying these are our living sacrifices, some might say, well, that's why 
uh, Catholics are wrong when they want to say that sacrifice is a part of regular worship or that the Eucharist is a sacrifice that that's the old that's the Old Testament sacrifice are the are the uh, heifers and the goats and the sheep and the birds that were cut up and laid on an altar that was their sacrifice now our sacrifice is what we do in our bodies it's no longer uh, a part of our liturgical worship I think it's I think it's careful uh, I think it's probably clear that Paul here when using the word bodies when he says present your bodies a living sacrifice he's referring to bodies in a wider sense for two reasons one is that later in verses 3 and 4 he actually uses the word body again and there he's using it of the ecclesial body the mystical body of the church so he has a metaphorical sense of it but notice also in verse 2 that when he specifies what this living sacrifice of the body entails, it means don't be conformed to this age, but be transformed in the renewal of the mind. So that by bodies here, he doesn't mean just our physical body apart from our soul or our intellect or whatever. He means the whole person is being offered up to God. <clears throat> and Part of the reason would be a part of the question that we we could uh, ask is well why why does he bring why does he use this kind of language the language of offering a sacrifice and when he wants to talk about being transformed into the image of God and I think the answer is very simple he knew uh, perhaps that the people in Rome had a regular liturgy around an altar. And uh, what he's saying is that when you come to that rational worship, that worship that is appropriate only for rational beings, that is human beings, then you need to place your your own self, your body, your soul, your spirit, you need to place it all on that altar, as, which is exactly what the church encourages us to do with our attendance and participation in Mass, to lay everything that we are on the altar of God. And this is uh, in connection with actually the the bigger context of Rome. He began Romans with the idea that in verse 5, uh, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations. The goal of Romans, the book of Romans, excuse me, is uh, Paul's letter to the Romans is to spread, to expand the obedience of faith. It isn't a faith alone, an intellectual, internal, mere acceptance of a, a list of doctrines or uh, a, 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 a list of ideas about God and his existence and his attributes. It isn't merely that we've accepted the fact that Jesus did something for us on the cross and then by God's mercy, he was resurrected. That's a part of it. It isn't merely an internal truth that it is a living out of this, an obedience of faith, and that this living out of this with all that we are um, is to take expression in our lives, a living expression day in, day out, not merely pointing back to a day years ago when intellectually we put our faith in Jesus and now everything's fine, that we've arrived at a, a quantum level 
that's different than everybody else and we can stand before God without embarrassment. No, it must be lived out. That verse in, that we referred to in Hebrews 6, that it isn't merely that we were baptized at one point and were anointed and received the Holy Spirit, and now we've arrived, and we can rest assured that if we die tonight and face God, that we're in good because of something we did years ago. No, it is a living out, a day by day, uh, with all that we are, our body, what we do with our body, what we do with our mind, in our relationships with our stuff, and all of that makes a difference. And all of that is to be holy and acceptable to God. Holy and acceptable to God. Now, Ken, this is so crucial. If we ask the question, how do I know that what I'm doing with my life, how do I know it's holy and acceptable to God? So that it makes sense. It's a worship that makes sense in the eyes of God. He then, the rest of this passage answers that question. Because the first thing we've got to do is recognize that in our mind, we've got a lot of baggage. And there, we live in a context, a soup, if you will, of voices all around us that are trying to tell us what this living sacrifice should be, how it's acceptable to God. And so he exhorts them by the mercy of God, then in verse 2, to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that you may prove what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Can the, the parallel of conformed and transformed, how does that flesh itself out in the original language? Is there a parallel of ideas here that seem to show itself in the, in the English? Oh yes, I think that's that's really uh, true, and the the particular the first statement it says, uh, "Do not be conformed." <clears throat> this is in a present tense in Greek, which, with a negative, a not in there, could be translated, "Stop letting yourself be conformed to this age," and it that that seems to imply what you just said. In other words. We live in a soup. We we cannot help but be influenced by the way that people around us are thinking, the way that they speak. And it's it's impossible to extract ourselves. So it's so easy to be conformed to the the scheme of the world. And I choose the word scheme because the Greek word um, schema is from which we get the word scheme. Schema means a pattern, a shape, a form. And the Greek word he's using here is suschema, and that means a, a making one shape fit into the other. Mm. We don't realize often, uh, very often, how our minds are so easily transformed or shaped by the way that the world is thinking. It's through the way the media comes at us. It's through the way that others around us think and speak. And oftentimes, at least in my experience, I've seen that it's because people don't want to be different than anybody else. They, they, they don't want to have the disapproval of their peers. And so they easily go along with, even if they're not necessarily convinced, they just don't want to be different. But Paul is saying, if you want to live as a true Christian, 
If you want to live as a man or woman dedicated to Jesus Christ, then you're going to have to be willing to be different, to be transformed by the renewal of the mind. And this reminds me, again, of the beauty of the Catholic understanding of justification. Justification, the Church says, is not a one-time act of God declaring us righteous. Rather, it's an inner transformation of the mind and of the heart that takes place over one's whole life. So when he says, be transformed, be metamorphosized in the renewal of your mind so that you may be able to discover what the will of God is. And what is the will of God? It is that which is good, that which is pleasing to God, and that which is perfect. So Paul here is is really challenging all of us to give our total lives to this transforming process, or rather, should I say, this process of being transformed in the image of God. Ken, uh, in the, the last moments here, uh, we'll continue this passage next week. I know that the Ignatian spiritual exercises were important in your own journey. And what made me think about that here is that St. Ignatius was saying that this renewal, this breaking away from the conformity with the world and the transforming of our lives by changing our mind, he felt took at least 30 days. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? In other words, it, yeah. to break free is not something we can do in a moment. It takes a disciplined effort. And that's one of the blessings of Catholic spirituality. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's that's fantastic. And, uh, you know, I've, as you know, Marcus, I've just uh, finished writing a little book uh, about this, about my own personal journey. But what you're saying reflects exactly what the experience of, of me and many, many others have, have experienced. And that is that spiritual, growing in, in the spirituality of the church, growing more deeply in the Holy Spirit, growing more deeply in love with Jesus Christ, what it really ends up being is a process that's day by day, week by week, Lent after Lent, that eventually gets us closer to our goal of being with God. Well, we're going to pick up next week at this. We're going to probably still talk more about verse 2 in the sense of how do we break from this conformity that we're in so that with our mind being renewed, we can be then transformed. And then how this helps us discover our place in the church, the gifts we've received, how we understand ourselves, so we look ourselves with sober judgment, so that we can live out what God has called us to do so that our lives are pleasing in His sight. Ken, thank you for joining us and all of you for listening. Thank you. God bless you. We'll be with you again next week.